I think we like seeing, you know, movies and having kind of a private auditorium sometimes and not having to worry about a cell phone going off. But at the same time, I've kind of missed, you know, that thing we've talked about all year, the the community experience of and hearing people react with a movie. This is the Box Office Podcast, and it is the last one of 2020. I am Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, which provides editorial content to movie theaters. And I am joined uh, by Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro Magazine, Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, the chief analyst over at Box Office Pro. And uh, yeah, we're excited to actually not have anything big and newsy to talk about this time. If you pull up our last episode, if you missed that, we went into a lot of detail about the HBO Max and Disney news and discussed potential ramifications for uh, the industry overall and more specifically the first quarter of 2021. Uh, This one, we're just going to kind of relax a little bit and talk to one another about uh, actual movies and and we'll talk a little bit about what happened in 2020 as well uh so hey daniel rebecca sean it's nice to wrap up the year with you guys we do have to bring in the caveat of course that we're recording this episode before the the week the new year's eve week so we don't know what wonder woman 1984 opened to so we you might (laughs) listening to this you might either be in a terrible mood or a very good one we have no idea that's true yeah we're preloading so that everybody can hopefully take uh, a little bit of time off obviously the four of us didn't have a lot of movie going experiences this year probably but uh for all three of you what were the best uh movie going moments that you had in 2020 like actual movie going moments not your favorite movie but the you know, the favorite experience right. of going to a theater yeah like at a cinema movie going moment last last christmas my big christmas gift from my family which i appreciated very much was a, a membership to the museum of modern art so like january february i just kind of lived at their uh, at their movie theater and saw a bunch of stuff and Thankfully, I think I saw enough stuff that the membership is paid for itself, even though the museums, you know, not screen movies for 80% of the year. But um, yeah, just going with friends to see just these old movies that um, Hedy Lamar's Ecstasy, which was, I believe, early 30s. And it's the movie that like really propelled her um, to to attention from American studios and American audiences. And, and, and forgive me my film history uh, nerdery there. But just seeing that movie, uh, you know, with friends, going to a diner afterwards and and talking about it. And it's not a movie that I think I would have enjoyed as much if I had seen it on the small screen. It is a very uh, visual movie. And then later we were all talking about how much uh, we liked the lead actor and we'd never heard of him. And then we looked it up and it turned out he became an actual Nazi. Oh. So, oh. Oh, surprise. Like, Twist. Like, like a legit yeah, oh. like an actual one. Oh wow! Okay, pretty sure, Whoa. pretty sure. They're at least like affiliated <laughs> in some way. So I don't know. I was like, okay, no, I don't. I can't like that. Guy. Oh my. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's a good turn. I did. did anyone else's? How do we have? Who, who wants <laughs> yeah, to segue no, from we, Nazis? <laughs> no, I don't have a good Nazi segue for you. That's We're just good. Have to do this awkward. That's good. Yeah. No. Let's just <laughs> let's just really roughly transition into Daniel, uh, Sean. One of you go, please, quickly. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it was a weird year, right? Where I think 
like many people in the country, most of my movie going was focused on the first quarter of the year. And at least, uh, again, we're talking about people working in this industry. That first quarter is usually films that we tended to see in advance, uh, anywhere between September and December of the previous year, just because of how award season works. So a lot of those titles... At that point in January, I'm watching something again, or I'm watching something that I saw on a screener on a big screen. And that's where the big positive movie going moment for me happened. I went to go see Little Women uh, with my wife. I wanted to, to see it for the first time with her on the big screen. And we have had a fantastic night out at the movies, packed movie theater, uh, seeing this really fresh take on, a, on an old classic. I bring that up because the next time I was able to go to the movies with my wife was in, when was it, October, to see Tenet uh, over in New Jersey. It was our first time going to the, back to the movies since the pandemic started, and it was just uh, a starkly different experience, right? Uh, it, that excitement that we had walking into the doors, I wish we could have still felt it. It was The safety measures are important. We felt very safe in there with with everything that that was instituted, but it still felt weird. It was the first time back. I think that first time back going to the movies is going to feel a little bit uneasy as you settle into your seat and and you look around to see the the protocols in place, everybody wearing masks, nobody seated anywhere around you, anywhere near you. That was a little bit tough to get used to. And, you know, unfortunately, I, I remember 40 minutes into Tenet really just having not really responding to the film at all positively and just wondering, I'm going to turn to my wife and see if she's, she's having a good time. And Oh my God, that's when I, that's when I realized we're screwed. That's when I realized this movie isn't hitting. And if it's not hitting someone that can probably cut uh, Chris Nolan, a little bit of slack, um, it's going to be a really, really difficult recovery. If this is being touted as a big blockbuster and it's really a niche film. And it's going to be difficult. Uh, I know, uh, Sean, on your end, you are a big Chris Nolan fan. I, I know you did enjoy it. You, you went to see it several times. Uh, again, it, from, on my end, it's not really a, a value judgment on the film. It's just a, a reaction to seeing it and sort of seeing the, the impact of that back to the movies experience. I think it's fair to say, Sean, you've probably been to the movies more than any of us this year just because you've been in a state that has allowed, allowed you to do so. True. I... Honestly, it was kind of a, there was a rush there. I think that first two months, six, six to eight weeks, we went to see at least a movie a week. And, but I've kind of gotten back into a lull again. And it's not necessarily because there haven't been movies that I want to see. It's, you know, it's partly just a combination of time, but it's also something I think you alluded to, like the, the experience is still a little different. Like when we, when we've gone, there haven't been that many people and, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I think we like seeing, you know, movies and having kind of a private auditorium at, sometimes and not having to worry about a cell phone going off. But at the same time, I've kind of missed, you know, that thing we've talked about all year, the, the community experience of, and hearing people react with a movie. So, but yeah, I mean, I have been fortunate to live in a state that we have a lot of AMC theaters around here. Uh, Regal is based out of my state. And of course, they're closed right now, but they're more on, more in East Tennessee and they have a few locations in Nashville where I'm at. But, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, tenant for me, I'm kind of, I'm kind of excluding that from my end of lists here today because I am such a Nolan nerd and 
I could easily say it was my favorite movie, but I'll just kind of, you know, we'll, we'll just assume I'll, I'll skip to my second favorite or favorite movie going experience. Cause going back to see tenant in IMAX, that opening night was, I mean, that was pretty high up there just on a lot of levels to go be able to do that. But, uh, if I were kind of looking earlier, I would probably say seeing 1917 in the Dolby mm-hmm. cinema back in January when it came out, that was a great experience. Some friends came into town. We went to see that together and, it was, you know, from a from a film quality and from a, a theater experience point of view, you know, that was that was a great moment this year for me. Ross, uh, how about you? What was the most memorable movie going experience you had? Also, you have a fairly young kid, which I think makes it much tougher for you to, to get out as often as you'd like. Yeah, it's uh, unfortunately I have very few movie going experiences this year because, uh, yeah, our you know when the year began, our son was uh five months old i guess so really squarely in the point where it was like uh, i gotta really like move things around to you know to get out to uh to the movies part because my wife was also super busy with work at the time i was pretty busy so it was difficult um one of the last things i did however before shutdown happened and i've talked about this on the pod before um i went to the american cinematheque uh the egyptian in hollywood to see a triple feature of uh versions of the movie m originally by fritz long Mm -hmm. which is you know one of the great like original crime thrillers where uh, you know the Berlin underworld goes in search of this child killer because uh, this 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 murderer's actions are bringing too much attention to the criminal underworld so they're like we're gonna catch this guy ourselves uh, magnificent Peter Lorre performance but um, there's a 1951 remake by Joseph Losey who's a American filmmaker who went into exile after uh, he had run in with Huac in 1951 uh, he did a remake of M that was basically his last American movie before he went into European exile uh, shot largely on location in Los Angeles and uh, partially in some neighborhoods that no longer exist uh, like Bunker Hill which was an adjacent part of uh, downtown which has been completely bulldozed uh, and it's it's amazing to me that uh, like central integral parts of major cities can just be wiped away and that now you might never know that they ever existed except you see it in a movie and it's like oh wow this you know this is one of the few visual documents like moving visual document documents of what was once a really vibrant neighborhood and a very uh important part of the city so the Losey's remake of M is not a magnificent movie by any stretch. It's got a lot of dramatic shortcomings, but man, it's gorgeous because you get to see these parts of the city that are now gone. Uh, it also has a really good sequence in uh, the Bradbury building, which is a significant, uh, you know, architectural landmark in downtown Los Angeles, probably best known for uh, the use in Blade Runner. So, uh, you know, I went to see that on, I think, March, I don't remember, the last Saturday in March before everything shut down. Uh, and I actually went, uh, Daniel, with uh, Amy Nicholson, who used to work at Box Office Magazine. So uh, that was a... Yeah, our predecessor Yeah, here. exactly. Yeah. So that was a fun outing. And it was a movie I'd wanted to see on the big screen for a long time. So to finally get a chance to see that was uh, was pretty cool. Another early, early MoMA screening early from this year was uh, a similar situation. Uh, Betty Gordon's Variety. It's an independent mm. 80s film. Um, you know, featuring a woman who works in a movie theater, but uh, specifically is a ticket taker at a Times Square porn theater. And it's that window mm. back to a different 
time, like seeing that and then walking through Times Square as it is now where you had right. adult theaters and now it's like TGI Fridays. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> In terms of new films, I mean, have, have you guys been able to see any, any new films, either ones that came out before the pandemic or stuff that's come out, you know, PVOD virtual theatrical uh, since then? What, what have been some highlights? I mean, I'll, I'll just pick it up from from where I left off. I mean, again, for me, uh, pre-pandemic, seeing new stuff was kind of difficult because uh, of my uh, parenting situation. So unfortunately, most of the new 2020 movies that I've seen were streaming films. So, you know, some stuff that really stood out uh, was like Spike Lee's The Five Bloods, which honestly was a movie that I didn't love. It's a movie that I think has a lot of uh, a, a number of issues, but the at the same time, the most important parts of that movie and the ambition of it continue to stand out to me. And it's a movie that I've continued to think about a lot this year. Uh, Delroy Lindo's performance is fantastic. With any luck, he'll be in the awards uh, conversation for this year. Um, so that is probably, at this point, the standout movie for me, the uh, first cow is also, I think terrific. Uh, like this really beautiful low key, uh, movie that's sort of a Western, but that, that has a lot more going on than just kind of rewriting what the Western is. Um, so yeah, those, those two, I would say stand out. And unfortunately I'm still working to catch up with easily probably two dozen other movies at this point. Sean, how about you? I'm trying to think back. It's odd because usually I catch all the awards films after New Year's. So like some of my favorite movies that I saw were actually 2019 movies like Jojo Rabbit. I can watch that any time of day, like just any, any time. And I love that. But so I'll kind of exclude that because it was last year. And that movie um, had fake Nazis, you know, just to clarify here. As yes. To the, the real just Nazi. keeping the theme that, alive. That from the Rebecca <laughs> song. Yes. Right. I, you know, honestly, I mean, I, I'm trying to, I would love to pick out a theatrical experience movie, but uh, Aaron Sorkin's Trial of Chicago Seven was—it is pretty high up on my list for this year, and it's—it's it's kind of fresh on my mind because I watched it shortly after it came out, October, November. But that's—that's uh, that's, uh, thats been a favorite so far. Um, there's a an indie movie called The Vast of oh, Night, which movie. is oh yes, kind that of movie a, is fantastic. Yeah, that was a great yes. one. Watched that over the summer. Uh, very Spielbergian kind of sci-fi yeah i think films like those but no like you said rust there's still a lot of movies i'm i'm catching up on or just haven't gotten around to i i can't i don't have as good of an excuse as uh as having a kid because my wife and i don't have any kids yet but there there are a lot of movies i want to try to catch up on over the holidays or you know after the new year just for for those listening if you haven't seen the vast of night which i think is on amazon prime uh really can't recommend it highly enough it's a very small movie uh but that is part of its appeal. It was made by uh, a first-time feature director who had a lot of experience doing commercials and other work beforehand, but um, made the movie in a really scrappy way. I mean, it cost virtually nothing and uh, was pulled together in a short amount of time with a lot of ingenuity and a lot of just we want to get this story made. Uh, it, it's kind of like a fifties version of a twilight zone episode, but seen like made in a very modern way. It's, it's just very cool. I, it was, it did some festivals last year. So I guess for me, it was a 2019 movie, but, um, really recommend it. And if you see it and you like it, 
there's a great podcast uh, that is by uh, Roger Deakins and his wife, James, uh, which, I mean, right there, like if you haven't listened to the Roger Deakins podcast, it's magnificent. They get great uh, filmmakers, talent, uh, people from all over the spectrum of the crew, but they have the the Vast of Night filmmaker on for a very technical uh, breakdown of how that movie was made. And uh, if you like the movie and you're interested in that sort of thing, I recommend that episode of the, the Deacons podcast very highly. For me, I was lucky enough to, to see Promising Young Woman uh, on, on the big screen as a, uh, as a screener, I think probably February. Um, I, I really enjoyed that one. It was, uh, you know, I think it's a film that, that looks great on the big screen if, if people are, are able to and are comfortable doing that uh, when it comes out on Christmas. Um, Nomadland, I, I really, I really loved. I, I wish I'd been able to see mm. that one on the big screen. Um, Sound of Metal. February 2021. It's coming out. And then like everyone else, um, some streaming titles, uh, Amazon Sound of Metal. I really enjoyed the uh, the HBO movie Bad Education uh, with Hugh Jackman. But the, the one that keeps coming back to me um, was actually a, a festival movie I saw last year that got a theatrical slash uh, virtual theatrical release, uh, I think in November of, of 2020. It's called Cocody, uh, Cocada. And kind of the elevator pitch logline that makes it sound a lot more upbeat and a lot more fun than it is, is is a Groundhog Day horror movie where a couple goes camping and then people show up and bad things keep happening and they live that day over and over. Um, However, and this isn't a spoiler because it's it's in the very first scene, this is a couple um, whose young child has just died. So... Russ, maybe you don't watch it, but, but the, the the supernatural experience kind of helps them process their grief, and it, and it's a really uh, very cerebral. It's a Swedish film, you know, for people who who are into kind of that maybe like Mandy, but it doesn't have that kind of hard rock metal aesthetic of, of Mandy. I don't like the term elevated horror when it's used to mean <laughs> horror, right. but smart. <laughs> But it is what people mean when they say elevated horror. It's it's a very uh, well done movie. But this is one that I have that's really stuck in my head since I saw it, which at this point's over a year, I think. I remember hearing about that, and uh, actually, you know, despite your your warning, thank you for the reminder because <laughs> I will. I mean, I as I'm looking at it now, you know, while you're talking about it, I just pulled up some images. I was like, oh yeah, I remember thinking this looked really yeah. cool, and so I just put it on the actual list of movies that I have to watch. Uh, so uh, I will watch it. It's a relatively new, like distributor, dark star pictures. It does a lot of like offbeat um, international horror and, and genre films. And whoever is on their like acquisitions team, they have really good taste. <laughs> on my end, it's, it's interesting that we keep on talking about movies that we saw before the pandemic really hit, uh, because I think, as I was mentioning with, with Sean's own experiences, the experience of watching a movie at 25, 50% capacity, it's just not the same. You know, I, I, I appreciate going. I, I think it's important. It's still how I would prefer to see a new release, but it, it really can't compare in terms of experience to those memories we have before the pandemic hit of, of watching something with that, with that buzz, with that energy. Right. And, I think interestingly enough, most of the movies that made it into the the top 10 I ended up submitting were films that were released in the first quarter. 
Uh, I've spoken at length about how much I liked a, a movie like Bacurau, a Brazilian title that actually came out in Brazil in 2019, was a massive box office hit there. Came out, I think, right as the pandemic hit and cinemas closed here in the U.S., uh, distributed by Kino Lorber, was an early pioneer in the virtual theatrical model. I can't recommend that film enough. It, it speaks about a lot of the structural problems that Latin America has that were really highlighted by, by this pandemic. Um, beyond that, I, I really liked Never, Rarely, Sometimes, Always, which again was one of those uh, early titles that were derailed by the pandemic, went to streaming on PVOD through Focus Features, um, and unfortunately, I think was very much overshadowed in the early days of the pandemic by other streaming titles uh, like Tiger King, uh, for example, where it's, it was really hard for those titles in that first quarter, right in March, to really get through the surface of, of a general awareness. And it's something, guys, that um, when I talk to relatives, when I talk to friends, they always express surprise. They're like, how could you see any movies this year? None of them came out. Are movie theaters even open? I haven't heard of any movies coming out. I think outside of our little bubble of working on this from a day-to-day -day basis, without having dialogue about movies and not only trailers, but you know, we were admittedly uh, criticizing the whole critical culture and critical discourse that we're having today, but even that plays a role. People talking about movies, hearing that there's a review out there that you want to read, that you want to engage with. And the, the transition I'm going to make with that is... A lot of my viewing choices at home, where I saw most of my movies this year, actually came from reading film criticism, which I really hadn't done regularly over the past five years. Uh, like you guys say, I missed that a little bit. I missed talking about movies. So I went back to some of the critics I, I like quite a bit, uh, looking through recommendations from, from folks that, that have that I've always liked reading, such as Nick Pinkerton, uh, Violet Luca, and uh, Richard Brody in, in The New Yorker. One of those movies that I saw at home that I really enjoyed for the first time was uh, Happy Hour, a Japanese film from 2016, which is divided into three parts. It's actually a five to six hour long whole, if you want to divide it into those three portions. Uh, that was fascinating. It's one of those long watches that being able to see it at home actually helped me. I think I would have struggled watching all five to six hours uh, theatrically. And I actually went back to revisit one of my favorite movies from last year at home, uh, Maria Lonina's La Flor, which is a 14-hour Argentine epic that I cannot recommend enough. It is just bat poop insane um <laughs> in just how it plays with genre and uh and with the same core actors i i can't recommend that enough i think those are the movies that going back to not only engage with film criticism but also being able to see them from home i was able to have that different experience did you guys have any great at-home viewing experiences in 2020 i think it's fascinating that you bring up uh the dynamic with like your family and your friends responding with that th that exact question how can you watch movies they're not coming out right. and i've had a similar experience but it's in the way of you know look we've all streamed a lot of series we i'm sure we've binged a lot of things or i know right. my wife and i have definitely kind of used this time to catch up on uh seasons of shows that we just haven't had time to watch over the years i never thought but, i'd know so many great british bakers in my life but after 2020 <laughs> yes. i know them all 
<laughs> That's a great example. If anything, I, you know, a lot of my friends and I kind of started this, uh, this game over text message in our group where we just do name it. We take a screenshot of whatever movie we're watching. And I can probably say nine times out of 10 all year long, it's been a movie that is, you know, was definitely pre pandemic, often older eighties, nineties, and kind of either just something they never got around to seeing or feeling nostalgic for seeing, you know, whatever experience that movie brought them when, whatever they saw it or their parents took them to a theater to see it. And that that's kind of been uh, a little heartening in some ways because I don't, you know, it's not to say that there isn't great content out there on streaming. There are some great movies, uh, and you guys have pointed out a lot of them that either never went to theaters or aren't really like wide releases. But at the same time, I think just talking with people who don't work in the industry with us, feeling that same absence of seeing movies in theaters is, you know, it's a good sign. I mean, and it's kind of been one of the uh, positive feelings this year for me. I mean, I've, I've done a lot of catch up this year on older titles. You know, I've watched some stone cold, you know, indisputable classics, Dr. Zhivago, Cape Fear. Um, my favorite new to me watch this year has been Showgirls, obviously. Um, it's better than any of those previously mentioned films. But speaking speaking to what you were saying, Daniel, I mean, my favorite movie-going watching experiences of this year, you know, every weekend I have a group of people and we get together via our computers and uh, watch some obscure, awful, horrible horror movie. Um, William Shatner's made a few appearances to give you to give you some context and any other movie experience. I'm just I, I flash back to me sitting on my sofa, sitting on my bed. It's chatting with other people through this. It's having the communal experience. Um, but yeah, for me, favorite new to me movie this year, Showgirls, for sure. It's funny because I the thing that I almost mentioned. Uh, as my best theatrical experience of the year. I couldn't remember if it had been this year or last year, and it turned out that it was actually this year. Uh, a friend of mine has a couple of different times uh, rented out a theater uh, for his birthday and invited a, a bunch of people. Like uh, A number of years ago, he rented out uh, the silent movie theater, a.k.a. Uh, Cine Family, for a while in L.A., and he showed a 35-millimeter print of RoboCop. Uh, the original, obviously, which uh, was great. This year, he rented out one of the Alamo Drafthouse theaters, and he showed, and he was like, basically, he invites people, and he's like, "I'm going to show you a movie," and he doesn't tell anybody what it is. Um, and this year, it was Showgirls, but it wasn't just Showgirls; it was Showgirls with the commentary by this guy David Schmader, who is uh, a comedian, and it's a commentary that both eviscerates and uplifts Showgirls. It's a movie. That, it's a commentary that understands exactly how ridiculous most of the movie is, but that also admires it for exactly the same reasons. Uh, so it's both uh, critically incisive and very, very funny. Uh, I think there's a, a DVD release that has this commentary enabled. If you get a chance to watch Showgirls with this guy's commentary, it's very, very much uh, a worthwhile endeavor. I recommend it really highly. Uh, I wish I'd seen Showgirls on the big screen. IMAX. <laughs> it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it, this was not IMAX, but uh, and I'll say for me, let's see, the, new to me, um, uh, Stop Making Sense was not new to me. I had seen the movie before. I thought it was a masterpiece before. I've watched it like five times this year because it is so pure and so to me uplifting. And it's I can't think highly enough of Stop Making Sense. Unfortunately, 
I haven't yet seen American Utopia, uh, which is uh, the David Byrne, the newer live David Byrne show that is on HBO Max now, I guess. I've heard it is wonderful as well. Um, uh, but I've got two new-to-me movies. Uh, I finally saw They Shoot Horses, don't they? Uh, which is a 1969 movie mm. with uh, Jane Fonda about uh, a dance competition that goes on for days and days in which people actually die as they're competing, uh, you know, for this kind of like absurdly small sum of money given what they're enduring to, to go through. Uh, and that movie was kind of uncomfortably relevant for 2020, I think. Uh, it is not at all a feel-good movie. It is one of the most depressing and in some ways horrifying movies I've ever seen. Uh, it was magnificent. I loved it. Uh, I can't wait to watch it again. Um, and then I watched this movie, The Silent Partner. So it's uh, a late 70s Elliot Gould movie where he plays a bank teller uh, who uh, kind of thwarts a robbery, and the robbery is by Christopher Plummer. The robber basically is angry that he's been thwarted, and he spends the rest of the movie stalking Elliot Gould's character, uh, who kind of has this weird on-and-off-again romance with Susanna York. Uh, there's also a character played by John Candy, early John Candy performance in this thing. It's uh, like It's kind of... Uh, like in the late 70s, there were these weird tax shelter structures that were set up in Canada that resulted in movies like Videodrome from David Cronenberg. Uh, and it was kind of like basically this opportunity for filmmakers to get a bunch of money to make a movie, but they had no time to do it. it would, these things would come up at the end of the year and it was like, all right, here suddenly you have this money, but you have to turn this around in four weeks or whatever. And my understanding is that The Silent Partner was a Canadian tax shelter movie. Consequently, like... It's a little rough and tumble. It's pretty sleazy at points. Uh, Christopher Plummer is like a really vile character in a lot of ways. Uh, and But it's it's Elliot Gould, who is always great. And it's if you like that sort of like bizarre, kind of grimy, heist robbery movie thing, uh, it's terrific. Uh, it's on the Criterion channel right now. So if you have that, you oh. can stream The Silent Partner. Well, let me, let me I want to, uh, I guess, wrap this up, guys, by asking, I mean, what's a movie that you're looking forward to in 2021 asterisk. We're not trying to jinx anything and, and it later goes to PVOD, but assuming the calendar stays, uh, stays what it is. Uh, what's your number one anticipated? I mean, Russ Dune, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah, you don't even have to ask <laughs> the question, <laughs> but obviously it's part of the whole Warner brothers thing. So hopefully I will get a chance to see it in a theater. I would much rather watch it in a theater than, uh, on, my television at home. So I will do everything I can do to see it theatrically. I'm sure there are many other movies that are coming out in 2021 that I'm also excited to see, but I've built Dune as my identity, <laughs> certainly on this podcast. And I'm not going to confuse everyone by deviating from that. Thing. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really looking forward to it's, it's actually, um, a Disney 20th century, uh, film deep water, uh, that's slated for mid August. That's the first film in, almost 20 years from um, from the director, Adrian Lyne, who did Flashdance, Jacob's Ladder, Indecent Proposal. Like, the Lolita remake was his, and I actually think his is better than the Kubrick one. Adrian Lyne, has, he has not directed a bad movie, and he's coming back out of retirement, and it doesn't even matter to me what the movie is. He, he has not done me kinda, wrong. It's kind of great that we're talking about it's great we're talking about showgirls and kind of grimy and sleazy movies because Adrian Lyne, his he comes movies right in. have that. Yeah. 
Yeah, and he's and here you are with Deepwater, which sounds like it's the new, the sort of revival of precisely that sort of mindset. So I'm all in. Sean, how about on your end? What in that 2021 calendar really sticks out for you that you're really excited to see on the big screen? All of it. I mean, I just want to go back. <laughs> uh, I can't really narrow it down. I mean, I, there's just a lot I'm excited for. James Bond. I mean, I've been watching those movies since I was a kid with my dad. So, And I've loved Daniel Craig's run as the character. So I'm really excited for that. Uh, four Marvel movies. Can't go wrong there. I'd probably say I'm most excited for uh, either Spider-Man or the Eternals out of all those. I think Top Gun Maverick could be a lot of fun. Mission Impossible for that matter. I mean... If if things go well, Tom Cruise could have a really big year. <laughs> if there's uh, if the new Mission Impossible actually makes it in 2021, that is certainly my second because True. I love those movies. I that is Mission Impossible is probably my favorite modern franchise, and I'm kind of surprised by that, but at the same time, not because it's just they're so well made, they're inventive, they understand spectacle. Uh, yeah, big fan. I would add Dune too, but I know Russ has me covered there, so <laughs> it's definitely high on my list. It's definitely high on my list. Daniel, yeah, take us home with uh, whatever eight-hour, fourteen-hour, twelve-hour. I don't think I could I could last that long in a in a cinema to uh, to watch one of these multi multi-hour epics. Although it, what I usually do because I, I don't I am not a fan of uh, of the NFL or American football in, in any way, shape, or form. On Super Bowl Sunday, I'll usually go to the movies and watch two to three movies just back to back to back. The movie theaters are empty. I can catch up on anything. And, uh, well, I guess if if they're open here in New York, they're going to be at 25% anyway. So things won't change much on that end. Um, Honestly, for new releases, uh, every year that comes in, for me, it's really more of a discovery thing. The way I like to engage with movies is by talking to people about movies. Uh, yes, I have my own critical biases and, and tendencies that I like, uh, filmmakers that, that I enjoy more than others, but it's film culture overall th- that, I, that I enjoy the most. I, I like being part of a conversation around something that people are engaging with. And to be honest, yes, half of it is within this film Twitter bubble or film professional bubble that we're all in. I always find that the best conversations I have around movies are with friends and families that don't really quote unquote care about movies. You know, they, they, they watch things and they like to be surprised by them. So that's going to be my 2021. I do rely a lot on the curating aspect of festivals. I think it's something that Russ had, had spoken to, uh, in the past. I didn't realize that like Russ until this year that, you know what, I really do rely on festivals to help me get a short list of films that I want to find out more about and and sort of engage with and and see if I want to watch. So it'll be a discovery. It'll be a discovery on on what comes out, what I get surprised by. And in terms of filmmakers that I like coming back, uh, I have to accept I have a a soft spot for that dollhouse fetishism of uh, Wes Anderson. Uh, so I am excited to see the French Dispatch <laughs> when it comes out. Uh, hopefully, at one of these art house theaters that I can't wait to support um, in 2021. You said dollhouse fetishism, and I was, I was ready like, for I don't that know to go a lot of different places. <laughs> <laughs> That's the end of the episode.
All right. Yeah, I think that's it. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, Happy New Year, everyone. Uh, I, you know, we, we said this last week, but uh, we can't thank you enough for listening. Uh, I can't express my gratitude and the sense of honor that I feel towards Daniel, Rebecca, and Sean to be able to do this with the three of you. This has been a great experience for me. And, you know, I sincerely hope for a better year for everybody in 2021 and especially for exhibitors who are out there and who have really struggled this year. I hope uh, with everything that I have that 2021 turns around and that we can all come out of it uh, stronger. Thanks again to recordeditpodcast.com for their constant work uh, pulling together everything uh, that we do and cutting out all of our between comment banter that, uh, you know, to make it sound like a clean and professional show. Uh, I assure you that on the recording side of things, it is far more rambling than you hear. So uh, any conciseness uh, is is entirely due to our producers and editors, and I, I thank them. Uh, this episode of the Box Office Podcast is by Daniel Luria, Rebecca Polly, Sean Robbins, and me, Russ Fisher. We will be out of the gate on Thursday, January 7th, with a new episode. Please join us then. Uh, thank you for sticking around, and uh, hope for the best for all of you. Take care. <laughs>